All right, guys, if you're like me and you spend quite a bit on supplements each month, I have something very important to you. So if we don't know how much our body is actually retaining or what we actually need from our supplements, we're basically shooting in the dark. So it's super important to test to know exactly what your hormones and your stress and your fatigue levels are, specifically your mineral levels and your heavy metals. Let's say, I don't know, you're human and you feel stressed and exhausted and you're probably not in the mood for some fun in the bedroom or a mood to have a really deep conversation with your partner because you're tired. Well, mineral deficiency could be one of the key things. So listen to this, 96% of people had at least one mineral deficiency and about 90% had 10 deficiencies that were negatively affecting their health. Uh, So clearly there's room for improvement for basically all of us. Now back to this idea of testing. Wouldn't it be great if you knew how much you're absorbing, how much you weren't absorbing, if you're getting too much, too little, all of that. Um, Otherwise, like I said earlier, you're just shooting in the dark. So knowing this allows you to save money while improving your health And you can do it all at once with one test and a consultation that pretty much pays for itself for what I spend on supplements normally. So with all that said, what I'm bringing you today is a chance to accurately test all of that. After all, you can't be informed without testing, can you? So welcome Upgraded Formulas in their Upgraded Hair Test Kit and Consultation not to mention their proprietary approach to minerals, which absorb really, really well. And something that Barton, the founder, developed, which he calls stabilized nano minerals. That's so that you can clean up any of these hidden deficiencies that are affecting your metabolism, your thyroid, your adrenals, hay stress, mental performance, recovery, endurance, strength, and that elusive sleep just to name a few. Not only that is Upgraded Formulas is a cool company that also gives back to charitywater.org. So if you've dealt with heavy metals in the past, like myself, getting this test really connects the dots for you and can be a complete game changer for feeling more naturally in the mood. And it balances your hormones while simultaneously lowering your stress levels, further helping your mind and body work together as intended, which means you'll be more easily in the mood. I mean, I am not mad at that. And ladies, this is just not for you, but let me tell you, you need it. This is also for your guy. So why is that? So testing their hair levels of their magnesium and zinc are super important for healthy sperm production, bedroom performance, balanced pH, and hormones for them as well. And during the consultation, one of their nutritionists will cover all of this with you, and it can really give you a new lens on how to have an effective addition to your self-care routine. Ideally, this is done quarterly, but it's not required, of course. And I'm going to give you a code to get you 15% off of your upgraded formulas, upgraded hair test kit and consultation. You can also check out their supplements and their minerals. I'm doing the magnesium at night because that's what I really need. And I also have the formula for my thyroid. So TSWL at checkout for 15% off. You'll go to upgradedformulas.com. Again, TSWL for 15% off. Know what your body needs. We have an awesome new sponsor, Eaton Hemp, that I'm so excited about. You guys have heard me talk about 
um, using CBD in my daily routine. I like to use this sometimes in the middle of the day, sometimes right before I go to bed, um, because I feel like it really helps with anti-anxiety or sleep support or stress support, even reducing inflammation and muscle recovery. And I'm all about that. And so we have our new sponsor, Eaton Hemp. You get 20% off of all of their products. And they have um, a tincture, they have a salve, they have some amazing granolas, they have um, things for your pet. I know my dog definitely needs CBD because she's cray-cray. And this is the way that you want to go. So let me tell you a little bit about why we wanted to partner um, with Eaton Hemp. Because... Eaton hemp is minimally processed and it's infused in Eaton's own organic hemp seed oil um, that's actually grown up at their farm in upstate New York. So their CBD is 100% USA grown, bottled, packaged, and processed. And the other thing about that, which is so good that you guys need to understand that I didn't quite grasp until I started researching this type of stuff on CBD, the CBD industry is all about trust, right? And you know, here on True Sex and Wild Love, we're all about authenticity and trust as well. And so there's a lot of brands out there that are just slapping a label on different products. And we don't exactly know where they're coming from or what their background is like. So that's why I really love Eaton CBD and all of their products is because they show their actual organic farm in upstate New York and are so transparent about where everything comes from. And I've used a lot of different CBDs out there, um, just trying to see what works for me because some brands work and some brands don't. And it may be because of the way they're processed um, and where they come from. And I can tell you, I have been using Eaton's CBD before I go to bed, or if I just feel a little bit anxious during the day, I have a lot going on in my life (laughs) at the moment. And so they've been my savior right now. I've been using their tincture and how you do that, you take it sublingually, um, which is underneath your tongue for stress or anxiety, um, sleep, and even recovery. So you can use the code TSWL for 20% off of all of their products. Like I told you, I'm just talking about the tincture um, and the salve right now, but they also have food and things for your pets and everything. So please go check them out. It is Eaton Hemp and you get 20% off of all of their products when you use the discount code TSWL. And the other thing is, is that they're so confident. This is what they're doing for you guys, for all of the TSWL listeners. They're so confident in their results um, and that their products, that all products come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And if a customer doesn't see the results that they're looking for, then that's okay. You, they will refund you with absolutely no questions asked because they know exactly how much they love their products and everything that goes into their products. So visit them at eatonhemp.com. It's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P.com. And then again, use T-S-W-L for your discount code. And it gets you 20% off. And you guys, let me know what you think about it because I'm addicted. And so I want to see, I want to hear from you guys to see how much y'all love it too. Check them out, eatonhip.com, TSWL for 20% off. Hey, Wednesday. Hi, Whitney. We haven't seen each other in a while. I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm here in my hotel bedroom in my bed, oh. literally. <laughs> okay. I'm in Los Angeles. And I think we're both in perfect places to talk to our amazing guests today. Yes, we absolutely are. And I'm really excited about this. Um, I did some research and I feel like her book should be made into a movie. 
I mean, our guest is Amy Stone. She has written so many incredible books, but her latest one is called The Man Who Hated Women. And I was so excited that she agreed to do this um, for all the reasons you're excited, Whitney. And I totally agree. It should be like a feature film or a scripted series. Something. Something has to happen. Like, let's make this, let's make this into a reality because I will binge watching that. I will be binge watching it. I mean, what could be more interesting? Okay. We're going to have Amy tell us what the man who hated women is about and why it is our favorite in our lineup of shows that we're screaming at Netflix to turn this into a scripted series. Amy Sohn. (laughs) <laughs> New York Times bestselling author. Now for the man who hated women, getting a Kirkus starred review. Those people are crabby. They don't give stars. <laughs> Publishers weekly starred reviews. Uh, throughout this immensely readable history, Sewn fashions sympathetic narratives of these women's lives and underscores their invaluable sacrifices for a vital cause. That's from the Kirkus starred review. Amy, Welcome to True Sex and Wild Love. Please tell us about the man who hated women. It's so great to be here with you guys uh, on the sticky, sticky day in New York City. I'm getting my Con Ed heat advisory emails. You're probably still getting yours. (laughs) You know what? It's just hot in here because of the topic. I I don't think, Whitney, I don't think anybody ever made the idea of what counted as vice in the 19th century as hot and controversial and juicy as Amy has. I agree. And like super interesting too, because I I didn't know anything about this. I, I didn't know much about you, Amy, coming into this interview until I started researching and, and watching your interviews and looking at these other um, uh, interviews and things that you've done. And I'm just like, I am so intrigued and I didn't think that I was going to be, but I'm telling you, it's like something that, <laughs> it sparked something within me. You're like, why are we having this woman talk about the 19th century? And then you realize it was a really hot century. I right. should say before we get before I'll describe my we we you haven't said the subtitle. So the title the title of my book is The Man Who Hated Women, and the subtitle is Sex, Censorship, and Civil Liberties in the Gilded Age. It is a work of narrative nonfiction, which means really highbrow. (laughs) (laughs) Super highbrow. Like the super highbrow blending of history and storytelling. And, you know, you start with, and the title refers to one character in this telling, this, this beautiful narration of an important moment in U.S. history. Can you tell us um, why you called the book this? Yes. Who who is the man? Yes. So absolutely. So the man who hated women is Anthony Comstock. I feel like some people may have heard of the Comstock laws if they're in a certain state and they can't buy alcohol on a Sunday. Sometimes they'll talk about Comstock laws, but uh, What he did was in March 1873, he passed a law, a federal law that expanded on existing obscenity law. And what it did was it classified contraceptives as obscene material and criminalized 
the mailing or selling of them with very harsh sentences and fines, five to 10 years in of hard labor and the equivalent of today, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. Who was this guy? I'm going to read you a, a couple sentences from my book so you get an idea. Yes, please. Yes. Anthony Comstock. I'll start again. Who was this guy? 49 years old during the fair and rounding out his second decade in power, he had red mutton chops covering a scar inflicted by an irate smut dealer who stabbed him in the face. He had enormous shoulders, a big chest, short tree trunk legs, a dome-like forehead, light blue-gray eyes, a broad brow, and the build of a fighter. Walking on the balls of his feet, he was short and stout, resembling a New Englander who eats pie for breakfast, dinner, and supper. He favored starched shirts with bow ties. Beneath his clothes, no matter the weather, he wore red flannel underwear. His shoes, which he bought from a police and fireman supply store, were size 13 heavy-soled boots. While crossing the street in New York one day, he was nearly run over by a mail wagon. He shook his badge at the horse and cried, don't you know who I am? I'm Anthony Comstock. A reporter once called his office and asked an assistant whether Comstock had been punched in the face that morning. The answer was concise, probably. Too bad he didn't get hit by that that male horse. The horse. He <laughs> he after he got his scar in the face while tussling with a smutty book dealer named Charles Conroy, he got nicknamed Scarface Tony. There were amazing nicknames for him from the liberal communities such as Smutty Tony, Saint Anthony, uh, Victoria Woodhull once called the YMCA the young men's. Christian, excuse the association association. Like she was like, the Christian should be embarrassed by the YMCA. But so here's the deal. Anthony Comstock, he was born in 1844 in New Canaan, Connecticut. Um, at the time, very agrarian community. You knew everybody, a lot of direct descendants of the Puritans living there at that time. His mother, Polly Comstock, was a direct descendant of the Puritans. They oh, belonged that, to the local... Meaningful. Yeah, they belonged to the local congregational church and basically spent eight hours there every Sunday, like morning, come home for lunch, go back. I mean, it was it was a very serious religious upbringing. Um, he fought in the Civil War after his brother died in service. Um, he <laughs> it appears he didn't see much action. There's a couple <laughs> accounts saying he claimed his service was more exciting than it actually was. He was bullied in the Civil War because he was religious and a lot of the guys he was meeting were not. So, for example, he you would get a whiskey ration and he would dump out his whiskey onto the floor so that none of the other soldiers could drink it. It's, it's one thing if you're not going to have your own whiskey, right? But it's another thing <laughs> to give it to the other guys. He came, he came home and found a trash fire set on his bed. That's how much they hated him. Well, he was like the enforcer already, right? Exactly. Kind of like a certain personality who leans into being a scold. It just right. like totally embraces it. Like, like 
his diary entries would talk about how the guys were making fun of him and mocking him, but he would always say that Jesus was on his side. I mean, it, it just, it strengthened. It's like, I want to be an outcast because I know that I'm morally correct. And I should add his civil war diaries, which are among the only personal um, reminiscences we have of him are filled with stories about his guilt about masturbating. He never calls it that. He doesn't even use the term that it was usually called back then, which was the secret vice. But he talks about how tormented he was and he tried to resist temptation, but failed to and spent the night beset by the devil. So he was, he was, he was jerking off in his, in his bunk and then like crying about it and praying about it the next day. I'm so glad I can say this. You can just say it. I have some questions. When I speak at the National Archives, I can't be like, he was jerking off in his... Well, that's what he was doing. I have some questions. Amy, will you please contextualize this a little bit? Tell us how he segued from this self-righteous, um, you know, um, prohibitionist. Yes. No, no, that's what, yes. So we, so we, so far we've only gotten as far as the civil war. He's now about 1920. And can you also set the stage about in, in the Gilded Age or the Victorian era? Yeah. You also set the stage a little bit, like you talked about how masturbation um, was considered the secret vice. And we still have a lot of stigma about masturbation. Could you take us up to how he becomes this crusader yeah, sexuality and birth control and kind of set the context culturally of that. Yeah, absolutely. So the most, so the most important person in his life until the day he died was his mother, this woman who I said, Polly Comstock, who directly descended from the Puritans. She was the Christian ideal also called the Victorian ideal women in this era were meant to be devoted to being wives and mothers and to being fruitful and multiplying. That was the highest good you could have. You had to be religious. You had to be all about family. And his mother was, she read him Bible stories. She really was his moral anchor. Now, one of the things I break in this book that I have not been able to find in any other biography of Comstock, contemporary or not, is that his mother died of a hemorrhage following the birth of either her sixth or 10th child. When Anthony was 10 years old, he came home from school to find his mother dead on the floor with the, okay, I just added the on the floor. Came home to, came <laughs> home to find, his, his quote was that he came home to find the loveliest mother that ever lived dead. And I was able to do research in New Canaan finding that she died of flooding, which was the word that they used for hemorrhage. And it was the same day that she gave birth to to his younger sister, Harriet. The baby lived. Um, So that event, so let's just like mark that as, you know, psychologist moment number, number one, when he's 10 years old. Then we have the Civil War interacting with these guys. Obscenity, by the way, was skyrocketing during the Civil War because it coincided with shipping and mailing becoming a lot easier um, and faster due to railway. So you could have um, men getting postcards, books, all kinds of things through the mail that would have been harder to get. And they could have a little more privacy about these things. There were little books that I found 
could be as small as like three by four inches that that contain dirty stories, dirty pictures. So you know these once once you could print p- paper in such a way that it could be hidden, you had a real explosion in what I call smut. I don't like I don't like saying smut. I feel like is a better umbrella term for what this was because it was visual. It was also written. Anyway, so that's event number two, going to the Civil War, masturbating, feeling guilty. He moves to New York in around 1867, decides he wants to be a dry goods salesman and one day own his own grocery. When he arrives in New York in the 1860s, it is he basically goes into shock because Manhattan at that time um, and the area where he was living, which was modern-day lower Manhattan, was totally targeted toward young single men. This was called sporting culture. And the city was filled with prostitutes, including streetwalkers, including waiters who were actually prostitutes. Uh, you know, by the way, I use this terminology. I, I, I wondered whether to use the term sex workers, but at this particular time in history, the women that were selling sex, and a lot of them did it um, part-time. In other words, you didn't have a very clear line between women who were selling sex and women who weren't. Many of them supplemented extremely low incomes from factory wages with either tricking or treating. Um, Tricking would be directly selling sex and treating would be things like um, meals and dates and, you know, experiences, but if they include food that you desperately need to eat because you're poor, it is a form of sex work. So I'm using the term prostitute, um, because of what was going on at the time. It was just a really, really sexy city, but it was sexy in a very specific way, which was sexy to young single men. And Ah. there are even some, there's some estimates that as many as 10% of women in their 20s at this time prostituted themselves at, at one point or another. So it was women, women were commodified, their wages were low. And if you were a man, you had so much entertainment at night from boxing to billiards to these, um, they were called pretty waiter girl saloons, where the, the waitresses really were prostitutes. One little anecdote I loved was um. It was a, there was a crime called being a panel thief. And that meant that a man and a woman went up to a room where he would pay for sex, but there was a secret panel on the wall and the woman would be working in collusion with another woman on the other side of the wall. And while the guy was otherwise occupied, they, she would remove a piece of the wall and steal his wallet. Oh, <laughs> it's like that. It's like the Jennifer Lopez movie, just like a precursor to that. Yeah. And then he had no idea what was going on. So I let, so the women were in some ways able to, you know, to, to get something out of these guys. But the event number, event number three in his psyche is he's living in a boarding house on Pearl street. And, um, a coworker at his dry goods firm, which is also in this in this area, that's modern day Fidei, uh Financial District, co- came up to him and said, "Anthony, um, I bought a dirty book, and I went to a prostitute, and I became corrupted and diseased." This is all in Anthony's telling of it. Now we don't know whether that means that he got VD from visiting the prostitute or just like visited the prostitute and then like masturbated a lot because masturbation itself 
was considered to lead to insanity or death. When Anthony heard this story, he decided to go to the bookshop where the guy bought the book because the guy felt that buying the book led him to purchase sex. And Anthony thought if you could get at the books, you could stop people, stop young men just like him from buying sex. And he went and he tipped off the police. He went to this bookshop to, you know, pretended to buy something and and tipped off the police and they got the bookseller. And that was the first time that he ever did vice work, anti-vice work. And what year and was this, Amy? About? This is late, late 1860s. Okay, thank you. And he, and he felt that, um, that this was his calling. And then through a weird, I don't even want to say coincidences, through just the fact that the YMCA was very young and new, it had been founded in 1852. So not even, you know, just coming up on 20 years old, he got in touch with the YMCA and said, I want to do something about the obscene book trade. And so they took him on and had him um, going after these bookshops that were all on NASA and Ann Street and eventually started to pay him some money, eventually formed a committee for the suppression of vice, spent a lot of money sending him to Washington to lobby for this federal legislation because he felt that existing obscenity law was not strong enough. And when he went to Washington in the winter of 1873, this is the most amazing story. He basically laid out uh, an exhibit of seized articles that, you know, he'd been doing this for two or three years at that point. And they included engravings and stereoscopic viewed dirty postcards and what he described as rubber articles. And the research I've done is that rubber articles include all forms of rubber contraception uh, for men and for women. Um, but also included sex toys and dildos. Um, they they had they had sex toys back then, and although earlier sex toys were not made of rubber because vulcanized rubber was not invented until the 1840s by Charles Goodyear, um, once they had rubber, the whole game kind of changed. So he he laid it all out in Vice President Colfax's room. And all of the senators came in to look at this like smut exhibit. It's like a cornucopia. It was like the horn of corn of plenty of, of 19th century sex toys and dildos and rubbers. And it you sounds of course like a place that I want to go to. Yes. I want to walk into that room and see all of these things, like a plethora of items that I feel like I could have fun with. And it's in the vice president's room. He laid it out on a table under this very famous chandelier. And uh, <laughs> and they all said, we want to pass the bill. That was the effect of it. And so it, it passed. So the bill, I'm sorry, Amy, the bill the was... The Comstock Law, which, which did this really, really scary thing, which was to add contraception to obscenity because before that you had a you had obscenity law that if you know that that legislated things like postcards and books and and that kind of thing he didn't come up with that idea but he decided to add articles to prevent conception and this was the beginning of the public associating contraception with something that was dirty 
So let me let me ask, why is contraception associated with something dirty? Is it because uh, yeah. how did he do that? Yeah, preventing the the, the idea was that women and men should only have sex for procreation and only within the context of marriage. Um, it was also the idea there were a lot of there was a lot of bad junk science out there. And people believed that things like poverty, criminality, and alcoholism were inherited traits. And so that certain types of people were likely to turn to sex work. The interesting thing was they didn't get too into the psychology of the men that were paying for sex, but the idea was that the women who were selling sex were either genetically um, predispositioned to do that or, you know, had been neglected by their family and, and needed help. So this is a long way of saying contraception was often associated with paid sex. It was something that, uh, you know, both men and women used in the context of sex work. But of course, there was they didn't use it every time. And there were there were a ton of diseases that were passed around from a married man who paid for sex and then returned home to his wife because they had this sexual double standard that it was okay for men to go to prostitutes, um, but women were expected to be completely faithful. So, okay, I like and I don't. <laughs> Kind of like today. The, so sex, the sexual coming back and also, full circle. And, and, and I don't and I don't want to say that all the diseases were coming from the prostitutes because these men were going, the men were going to lots of right. different women. But the sad thing is, of course, in the end, it's the faithful monogamous wife who then becomes ill herself and she hasn't done anything. And it's so weird, you know, that the focus at the time was on the women sex workers or prostitutes, because we know that women are so much more vulnerable to sexually transmitted infections than men are. So it's so interesting that they were sort of villainized in the site of social control, as you say, Amy, rather than going to men that we used to, we used to call Johns, right? Like, yeah, no interventions there, but all interventions on the female body. You mean so basically the men the men can spread it and then and then the effect on the women is much worse than the effect on the man? Yeah, the vaginal tissue is very delicate, whereas the tissue on the penis is skin. And so women are much more um, vulnerable to transmission than men are. So you okay, you're getting at so many hypocrisies <laughs> here that I love. And like as Whitney said, like plus ça change. It's like it's like you said, this is like a really important moment when like obscenity and women having control over their reproduction get mapped onto each other. What? What? Okay. What happened in that room when he said, and also this contraception yeah. stuff, like how did he get that buy-in? Yeah. And I, I feel like I didn't totally answer your question. The simpler answer for how it came to be viewed as obscene was birth control and contraception were considered anti-family and they were considered anti-family in these two contexts. One is the only people that need that are people that are having extramarital or premarital sex. And the other is that even within the context of a marriage, you should have as many babies as possible that even in, yeah. in the context of a loving monogamous relationship, um, to try to prevent pregnancy was to go against the Bible. Right. So, but in the American experience, 
contraception, I, by the way, I keep using the word contraception because birth, the word birth control was not invented until around 1911. So, um, and there's all kinds of reasons that that, that term um, came to be. It's one of the most ingenious terms of art in sex history, American, American history. But before that, it was called either contraceptives or articles to prevent conception or checks. I like that one, checks to conception, like, <sighs> like correctives. Um, so in the 1840s, um, I mean, before the Comstock law came around from like, you know, say the 1830s up until the 1870s, there was a ton of contraception used by everybody. And people who oh, think that contraception was, you know, I think some people will say, oh yeah, I, I heard that there were rub rubbers in the Roman era. Like people know that's like their one fact that they know about like early contraception. But the truth of the matter is there were, before there were rubber things you could use, um, one of the most common forms of contraception was a vaginal syringe. And that was very cheap. You could get it at any druggist or from your doctor. And it was, see, I don't know whether to call it a douche or a suppository. It was something that you inserted into your, maybe you can help me with this ones. You, you inserted it into your vagina. And before you inserted it, you could fill it with whatever substance you chose with anything from water to uh, acids which were said to have spermicidal qualities and did to all kinds of herbal remedies. I mean, things that would make you like really sick, boric acid, sulfuric acid, um, many of which were dangerous, but also, you know, what else is dangerous? Getting pregnant 12 times and having 12 babies. Right. Amen to that. So women were making so, this trade-off. Do you think I should call them douches or suppositories. I've also seen the term vaginal douching syringes. Does it stay in or is it like a, it's like washing? No, it you put, you know, it's, so it's after intercourse, you put it in to flush out the sperm and it, it stays inside internal. No. And then you take it out. Yeah. Okay. So there's like a plunge. Oh, cause you're saying a suppository. Yeah. Your suppository is something that like dissolves inside you. I like that. Uh, yeah. That's what I would think is that yeah. you know, a suppository is something you place in and then you leave it there as it dissolves. Yes, exactly. No, they didn't have that technology yet. These were, <laughs> you know, those little eggs or, yeah, these were um, vaginal douching syringes. And I'm envisioning like a turkey baster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and interestingly, they actually could also be used, women did use them to try to end pregnancies um, because women do crazy things when they're trying not to be pregnant, but, um, you know, some of these herbal, herbal remedies and things like that, they, they believed that it would, that it would work. So those were really common. Once, okay. once rubber got, uh, more flexible, you had cervical thing. I'm using modern day terms, cervical caps, diaphragms, um, various blocks and plugs to the cervix, anything you could think of. Um, uterine elevators, which could be kind of similar to IUDs, all different ideas of changing and stretching the shape of the uterus to prevent insemination. Um, there was a ton of contraception and there was a ton of literature about how to use it. They tried rhythm. Um, rhythm was very popular. In those days in the 1800s, they believed 
that the safest time was in the middle of your cycle. Oh, shoot. Took him a little little while to figure that out. Figuring out ovulation took a minute. Yeah. So, but they were still trying. I mean, at least they, at least, you know, doctors were, you know, we're trying to figure this out. They, they understood the idea that there were certain times that were riskier than others. Of course, probably the oldest form of contraception is withdrawal. Um, and couples were, were doing that. And I feel like this is getting, getting all sort of over the place. We'll, we'll talk about male continence later because that like deserves its own thing. But the reason I'm saying all of this is that birth control and contraception, contraception was accepted, common, and not stigmatized until he came along and kind of did this in the American mind. He was not alone in this. Other religious people were opposed to it. But it was actually kind of a rich and healthy time for contraception before he came along and ruined anything. And similar, uh, that's also true of abortion. Um, Abortion was very, very common in the Victorian era. um, And women would get them from either their doctors, your primary care physician. This was an ordinary service provided to you by your country doctor, you know, who took care of your whole family. Um, and also, they got abortions from what were called eclectics or irregulars, which were a combination of homeopathic women practitioners who didn't have traditional medical education, um, but knew how to provide abortions. And there's a really interesting book by Carol Smith Rosenberg. I believe it's her book, uh, Disorderly Conduct, oh. where she describes the way and this blew my mind the way that because the abortion trade was so heavily dominated by women the men realized they weren't getting any of this business and abortion although it's a medical treatment is also a business you have a constant supply of people who need them and will pay you money to give them to to you And so the men in the 1840s decided we're going to create medical specialization and we're going to create these licensing requirements and we're going to make it harder for women to get abortions. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to take the abortion business away from women practitioners, such as as midwives and homeopaths. And it totally worked. And that's the reason that a lot of medical societies you'll see were formed Medical colleges and medical societies were formed around the 1840s. This was a concerted effort to say, we want this business. We want this money. We don't want the women to get it. You know, this is such an interesting point, Wit and Amy, because I think a lot of times we get this idea that controlling a woman, a woman's ability to reproduce and choose whether to reproduce, we get that that's a form of social control. But then there's this additional layer, right, that once you realize that women are doing this and and have the, this form of autonomy, there's also a level of women servicing them for these needs and desires. And so then you're also asserting social control, not just about who gets to decide whether a man, a woman, sorry, carries a baby to term, but then you're also exerting this social control about the hierarchy of knowledge of specialization and who gets money off women's bodies. Exactly. And the first 
you know, I have, I have negative feelings about medical specialization because I think there's a lot of unnecessary medicine practice, which is a, a whole other conversation. But one of the best, most interesting provocative phrases I, I read in my research was that abortion is the first medical specialty. Hmm. Ah, it was the first instance of taking it out of the hands of women and making it the property and, um, and the business, the, the commercial, commercial yes. trade, commercial trade of, of men. So when Anthony Comstock was in, New, was in New York, the newspapers were filled with ads for abortionists. It was relatively easy to find providers. Now, some of them were quacks and were probably very dangerous. And we know that there were a lot of high profile deaths due to abortions, um, which had really sensationalistic trials. But women were also getting safe, um, inexpensive abortions uh, in this in this time period. But he just thought that all abortionists were evil, and it's really fascinating too because the abortionists themselves were a totally different model of women, womanhood. So, for example, if his mother was the Victorian ideal, you know, dies after having dies from childbirth or after having six or ten children. The abortionists were seen as old, money-grubbing, evil, um, you know, morally corrupt, l- luring young women, you know, into them to, to do this evil thing to them as opposed to helping women in need. Um, so it's, it is. There's just so many different ideas about womanhood floating around. You've got the Victorian wife and mother. You've got the sex worker who was usually seen as more of a victim, troubled, fell astray. You know, she at least could be saved through religion, counseling, social support. And then the abortionists who were kind of stigmatized as, I want to say, like almost a spinster or an old maid or a grandmother, you know, unattractive. And uh, yeah, Yeah. I mean. And, you know, this gets us. It's a a semiotic. Orgy. It's a semiotic salad. <laughs> it's a semiotic salad. Okay, so this is great though because, like Whitney, uh, like we were making this point earlier about how it's called the man who hated women, and it's about Anthony Comstock on some. Got to talk about the women, yeah. But yeah, like now we're talking about the women. So this is so interesting. You're saying that there were these sort of. Among others, there were like these three archetypes of femininity circulating. And there were others as well, you know, enslaved women um, were like um, just like products, right, for men's sexual pleasure. And they were just supposed to reproduce, right? So there were, there were these many different tropes of femininity. And I love this. I love you underscoring how the abortionist who helped women have control was like considered really asexual repulsive it's like women have- or over the hill because you know frequently they were older women right okay so let's segue to talk about you know now let's do our let's do archetype number four which is the really positive one which is the sex radicals which is the women that i write about in in my book Yes, because you de- you dedicate a lot of pages to these women. You you give us a great sense of Anthony Comstock about how he got the Comstock laws passed, about the the just complete social upheaval they created in terms of social control of women, and then you give us these great sort of uh, 
complicated these eight women. Yeah, these eight these eight sex radicals. Um, I call them sex radicals, which is a term that a free love historian named Hal Sears used, which I I I love so much. I feel like it describes me. I feel like it describes both of you guys because it it's about using sex and talking about sex as a form of radicalism, which I think is I have so many things to say about that. So my I mean, book. First of all, we need a yeah. t-shirt, right? We all need t-shirts. Sex radical. radical. And then on the back, you know. And also, isn't it funny because we talk about like getting more free radicals into our diet? <laughs> <laughs> so tell us your favorite sex, sex radicals. radicals yeah. you want like eat more. We, oh, yeah, we got to do something like eat more sex radicals. Eat. Um, get them. <laughs> get them in. Okay, so my book focuses on eight women who were all prosecuted under state or federal Comstock laws. Um, the more famous ones I don't really want to talk about on this show, they okay. include Emma Goldman and Margaret Sanger and Victoria Woodhull and her sister. They've been covered, they've been covered a little bit. Um, the women that I'm really fascinated by and love were all born from around 1850 to like the late 1800s. Um, and my book spends about a third, a third of its pages talking about a woman named Ida Craddock. Ida C. Craddock was born in Philadelphia in 1857. Her father sold cannabis. Her mother was a temperance activist uh, and a re- religious woman Unitarian. And they sent Ida to a uh, to Friends Central, which is still a very well-regarded private school in Philadelphia and was Quaker and co-ed. And she did great in all her classes. She was a total genius. And when she graduated, she wanted to be the first woman to get an undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. She took her exams, passed with flying colors and was rejected because she was a woman. She tried two other times over the next three or four years to get in, and they kept rejecting her because she was a woman. It would be, I think, three and a, another three and a half decades before Penn accepted women into its undergraduate program. So she was truly ahead of her time. What does a brilliant, nerdy, curious, only child living with her widowed mother in her 20s do when she can't? get into an Ivy League school because of discrimination, she becomes obsessed with sex. And so she she starts going to the library, the Ridgeway Library in Philadelphia, and reading everything she can about sex. They actually did have some pretty weird, good books there that she was able to get her hands on. She, her mother was like mommy dearest, she whipped her well into her, I mean, more like bit, more like bitch slapped her, like slapped her with, with like wearing a lot of rings, um, well into her thirties. She was very tyrannical and she wouldn't let Ida have intellectual salons in the home. Ida just wanted to be around a lot of cool bohemian hipsters. And her mother was like, no. So then what does Ida do? She's like, mom, I'm moving to San Francisco. <laughs> I love this story. It's just like so modern. So modern. <laughs> She's like, mom, going to the West Coast. So she has a really hard time getting jobs because she doesn't have a college education and she never went to normal school, which was a two-year program that allowed you to be a teacher. In those days, 
you know, women, the only kind of higher education that was encouraged for women was normal school, which was a way to be a teacher. She wanted- I'm sorry, it was called normal yes, school? Yes, yes, yeah, okay. yeah, normal school, um, like teacher training. So she goes to San Francisco and she has all these, literally, she's like, a t- she's a temp. She, there's one account that she was a chorus dancer, but I could not find any attribution for that. So we're not going to go with that. It doesn't go with her personality either. It could be an attempt to discredit her, like saying that Catherine the Great. No, but the guy that said it, the guy that said it was actually sexually obsessed with her, but you're close Wednesday, right? Because it's like, really, he said it because I think his, that he wished, he wished she was a chorus dancer. Uh So she was a temp, she worked at a bank and through this weird connection, a bank employer, the guy said, I'm obsessed with Alaska. I'm going on this trip to Alaska. Do you want to come along? there was no sexual relationship between them. He was, he was a mentor. He was trying to help her out. He probably realized how freaking brilliant she was. So she's like, of course I want to go to Alaska. And she goes and she sees all these totem poles and she becomes obsessed with phallic symbols. And she starts studying world religion. And it was at the time it was, it was, you could almost view it as like a precursor to semiotics. It was kind of a, a fusion of world religion and semiotics. It was called phallic worship. And people would study just different symbols in mostly Eastern religions and what they had to do with fertility and and that kind of thing. So she became completely obsessed with this and then got a couple of articles published about phallic symbols in folklore publications, these these kind of radical um, papers, and went back to Philadelphia as like every time she moved away from her mother, she ran out of money and then had to move back in with her mother and her mother Damn. would treat her like shit. Damn. She lived in the, she slept in the living room behind this partition that she called the cubicle. She said, I'm sleeping in the cubicle again. Again, so modern. And in 18 or 1890s, so at this point she's in her 30s, she buys a Ouija board. She becomes really interested in, you know, because she's building this interest in world religions, buys a Ouija board and starts to hear voices and see, I mean, she did all kinds of things. She tried to levitate. She tried something called automatic handwriting, which is when you you write and maybe the words don't seem to be your own and the handwriting is kind of different. And so it's a way of like ghost communicating. Like which channeling kind of? Yeah, yeah through yeah. your own handwriting. And through the Ouija board, she's able to channel these, um, she meets these four spirits. And one of them is her dead father. Um, One of them is a dead infant who had died before Ida was born. They did this really creepy thing then, like they had a baby that died and they would name the baby. And then when they had another baby, they would give the next baby the same name. Like Like when they had their first girl. So like she had a sister called Ida who died before she was born. I mean, if there's any way to make sure that you have a ghost attached to you in some way, (laughs) it's definitely that. (laughs) But but you have to understand too, without going on too much of a tangent, infant infant mortality was so common then that, 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 um, I mean, at least they had better grieving rituals by naming, you know, naming, but again, a lot of the, a lot of these, these babies were, were dying, you know, like zero to six months and then, and then beyond. So anyway, so Ida wouldn't have been an only child, but she was an only child. Um, The most important ghost that she channels is named Soph. And Soph turns out to be the ghost 
of a businessman friend of her mother's who used to come and hang out with her mom. And when they're waiting for her mom to come down the stairs, Ida was a teenager. He was like in his 20s. Um, he would flirt with her and make eyes at her. And he made her feel really good about herself. And she never named what his name was on earth, but he he died young of tuberculosis. And so when she began to sense these unseen spirits, one of them was Soph. Well, Soph started out just as her friend, but within a couple of months professed his love for her and revealed himself to her. Um, and then they started, uh, well, they did not have premarital sex. They were married in the borderland in 1892. And he basically became the love of her life and the sexual love of her life and visited her at night um, to give her mind blowing sex. Yeah. To clarify, this is a a ghost that she has a love affair with that got married to. Oh yeah. In the border, in the borderland, she had a, she had a, a, a spiritual marriage to him. What is the borderland? That was this world between the living world and the dead world and on the border. Where, that's where an unmarried woman got to have sex. <laughs> she literally fucking make up a place to have sex where she wouldn't get pregnant from it. She figured it out. Smart. She's like, fuck it. I can't use birth control because of Anthony Comstock. I can't even have sex with anybody because of my mean mom. She named me after a dead baby. She could have. <laughs> she, she could have met guys at Penn if they had let her yeah. in. Yeah, and she, had some awesome hookups. She had she a lot of radical. She had a lot of radical friends who were men, but they had a very patronizing attitude toward her. And wouldn't you know when she goes and she tells these guys. I found love. They're like, who is it, Ida? And she says, well, he's the ghost of my mom's friend and his name is Soph. They all thought she was completely insane and distanced themselves from her because she was in the both the radical world and the rational world. The people that she hung out with and was friends with were atheists, free thinkers, which was kind of a predecessor of free speech. And these were scientifically minded people. They didn't believe in ghosts. So then in 1893, Ida goes to the World's Fair in Chicago and she sees the belly dancers. She sees the belly dancers just, you know, less than a year after she's married this ghost. And she goes insane with joy and delight because she's watching them balance bottles of water on their head and wiggle their hips and do this very spasmodic orgasm-like dance. And she understands what it all means because she's been studying phallic symbols in different religions. And she writes this essay about how the belly dance should be used as a premarital educational tool, basically as sex ed, because it teaches women to wiggle their hips during sex. Now, why do you guys think she thought women should wiggle their hips during sex? To have an orgasm. Yeah, pleasure. That's what I think too. Oh my God, wait, hold up. So this ghost fucking brilliant <laughs> woman is one of the people who also helped cross over belly dancing. But she thought that it would be a really great sex aid. Yeah, and guess who hated belly dancing? Anthony. Anthony's like, God damn it. You guys got it. Anthony, because Anthony Comstock went 
to the Cairo Street Theater, which was the most popular of the ballet dances. There were about, about three of them. Do you know that at the World Fair, you had your choice of three different ballet dancing shows? <laughs> Just one. One isn't enough. There was the Persian Theater, the Egyptian Theater, the Cairo Street Theater. I think I'm getting, I think I'm getting them all right. And so he hears about the belly dances while he's teaching at a religious revival in Wisconsin. And he's like, I'm going to go see what these belly dances are about. And he goes to the World's Fair and winds up trying to shut the belly dances down after he watches them. (laughs) That's just a bummer. And then Ida, I think she, I I think this, what I, I think the chronology is that he went there first and a couple weeks later, when she heard that Comstock was trying to shut them all down, she's like, I got to see these for myself. Because he he did the thing that you always do when you hate something and publicize it, which he just called way, way more attention to it. But again, millions of Americans visited the World, World's Fair and the belly dances were the, were the most popular and the belly dances at the Cairo Street Theater were the most popular. So she wrote this essay and she published it in the world, New York World, Joseph Pulitzer's New York World, defending belly dancing. And she named Anthony Comstock and said, instead of trying to shut them down, he should see that they're a religious memorial of purity and truth. Now, one of the things she maintained for her whole life was that sex haters are ultimately unclean and that pure-minded people understand the beauty and connection and power of sex and that the ones that don't understand that, it's because they hate their own masturbatory desires and they view themselves as unclean. So she was real, and this is pre-Freud. And she put that in that article when she named him? She didn't go that far then, but she later called him, she at one point called him a sadist. (laughs) And she compared um, Comstockism to to like masturbation. (laughs) I mean, she really, 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 really hated this guy. So she comes back from the World's Fair. We'll go on with this kind of modern story. Because, you know, Wednesday no, Wednesday knows I had a column in New York Press when I was in my 20s oh, that good. was about my dating life. And it was, called, oh, it was called Female Trouble. And everyone used to come up to me and say, oh, is that like Sex in the City? And I would say, well, no, because I've never been on a date north of 14th Street or west of 3rd <laughs> <Third> Avenue. <laughs> It, it was, was a great monthly column, and we all. We, well, at one point it was. At one point it was twice a month. Yeah, we, we, Whitney, we waited for it. We were oh, like, so "What good. did Amy Stone do now?" <laughs> and this was before. Then she went on to write like a book about motherhood in Park Slope that blew all our minds. This is a woman who blew all our minds in New York and nationwide, really, on the regular. Like Amy Stone has a long tradition of. And I think there's a reason that you uh, love Ida Craddock. Oh, well, she's, I mean, this trajectory, I, by the way, I have a great relationship with my mother, but that thing of bouncing around in your twenties and living with your parents and like, I got to get out of here. And then also, how am I going to make money? I, in order not to live with my parents, I have to make up, make enough money not to. So, oh, if I can't do that, I have to, you know, I have to live with them, but it sucks because in fact, after she started having sex with Soph, she for a brief period was living in London. She came back to live with her mother in Philadelphia and was then like, it's so annoying because mother's around, so we have to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> we can't even have loud sex. With a ghost. With the ghost. 
It was clearly extra loud, I'm sure. (laughs) Mother, she would say like mother went out to do some errands and Soph and I were able to have a Y snake. She called them, she called them Y snakes, W-I-S-S-E-N-I-N-G-S, which was for me for making wise because all of her sex experiences were educational. Also, Ida, I've written about my own orgasm journey, and I, I wrote about it from, from a young age. Show notes. Um, what'd you say? Can you tell it? We're going to put that in the show notes. I wrote about, the, uh, I wrote about orgasms. Um, yeah, put it in the show notes, but I have, to get, I have to give it to you. Different kinds of orgasms and coming alone or coming with a partner and all that kind of stuff. And so she, uh, I totally lost my train of thought. Where were were we with Ida? Oh, her orgasm journey. Yeah. So this is the crazy thing, right? She's getting visited every night by a ghost. I think from reading her diaries, um, she talked about lying on her stomach or lying on a pillow. I think that in some cases, she was doing some frotage while imagining that she was being penetrated from behind. But she also wrote about having clitoral orgasms and being really upset about it. So she believed that clitoral orgasms were immature. Of course, Freud popularized this. Right. His writings were starting to make their way across the Atlantic a little bit later than she became interested in all of this. And the idea was that if she came clitorally, um, it was, it was too, it was too masturbatory because the clitoris resembled a penis. And she would write these diary entries like, I was getting really close and I wanted to have an astral or she'd call them astral an astral orgasm, but basically I got too excited and I had a clitoral orgasm instead. And I'm really disappointed. Damn. <laughs> wow. So radical. And yet like some of the ideas, so retrograde, right? She's yeah. like this really contradictory figure because what did we, what was she allowed to know about? Sex? But also if she's having orgasms of any kind in 1890. Three. Writing about it. How would you, why would you be judging? What I'm saying is, why wouldn't you be like so psyched that you were having orgasms? That's what I'm saying. You know, you have like your clitoral orgasm or your astral orgasm, whatever you want to call it. Like, let's have some fun with that. <laughs> yeah. But she, and I, what I'm also really curious about, because you know, I'm sure you've talked about many times on your show about G-spot orgasms and, you know, all different, different kinds. But what I wonder is what was an astral orgasm to her in the context of sex with a ghost? Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. What, what was happening? We don't believe she was stimulating herself with any external objects other than the pillow. Right. I mean, for people who don't know, frotage means rubbing basically. So she's probably like, grinding. Yeah. And she didn't know, then we didn't know that it was all clitoral stimulation. We didn't know how extensive. Oh, I, I buy a little tangent. I love, okay. What is it? The, what is it? The, the, what's that item that shows the way that the, the nerves and everything is all connected. What's it called? 
the three D. You mean the three D model? Yeah, of yeah. The female clitoris. Yeah, and I and I love and I love the way that you've that you've described everything as clitoral and. I don't know if you talked about in Annie Hall, there's that amazing line where the woman goes, um, I finally had an orgasm, but my doctor told me it was the wrong kind. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so great because this conversation like that she helped start, right? And then Freud was kind of uh, having the same thing about a hierarchy of orgasms. Like to your point, women were living that into the 70s and 80s. And women are still living it now. I mean, there are people out there who tell women that if they just try harder, they can have an orgasm from intercourse. And it's just all about being blocked and just trying. And every woman's capable of it. And it's like, it's all the clitoris. What's the fuss? But I love that she started us on this course of, I didn't know there was this like connoisseurs of orgasms in the late, 20th century. It's well, she wasn't, she wasn't, she wasn't. She got, you know, a bunch of things right. She said that you yeah. women should wait and try not to have children spaced too close together because it was bad for maternal health. She was not right about th- saying that men should avoid the clitoris at all. Cost, very, not a great, not, funny. not a great message to be sending. She said that if couples were too tired to have sex on their wedding night, that they shouldn't. I would put that in the pro category. It's good. Yeah. Uh, good. Every time I get people talking about their wedding night, I would say one in 10 had sex or good sex. I really, now that I'm, I'm at a wedding this weekend while we're having this conversation and now I it's my boyfriend's friends. I don't really know any of these people, but I'm now so curious. Because every because everybody because everybody's so so tired. She also said if the wife's um if it's if the wife is not lubricated that you should use um cosmoline or vaseline. And she said that sometimes it might feel as though sometimes she said like a penis and vagina are like a hand trying on a glove that's a trifle too small. She had remedies that she recommended for mismatched couples, meaning guys with really big dicks or women with really small vaginas. And uh, I don't know if she did the other combination, but basically there was this guy who um, was just causing his wife enormous pain every time they had sex. So she shared that he had gone to a doctor and basically had like a pad like, I guess you would call it like a kind of like a padded cock ring, but it was something so that he wasn't going in as far. It was something that stopped him from going in as Ah. far. And they went on to have however many babies, like they had a happy sex life and like had babies. It's like what we have today is like the O-ring, you know, for that specific reason. Yeah. There. Yeah. So I mean, Amy, I think part of your contribution is that you're helping people understand that we think of Victorians as very anti-sex. But they, like, as Michel Foucault said, and as you're getting at, it's like, they were obsessed with sex. They, they were, were improving it, interpreting yes. it, right? Having sex with ghosts. <laughs> I love, no, I actually, I love that you, that you point that out because, well, two things. One is that Anthony Comstock and Ida Craddock weren't all that different. Their approach and their attitude towards sex 
was complete opposite, but they were both obsessed with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> thought about it all the time. The other thing that I think you're pointing out that's really important is that the free love movement, which was a kind of a radical social movement that was around egalitarian marriages, sharing of labor, domestic labor that was done in a fair way, easier divorce laws, civil marriages where you would make your own marriage contract instead of be married under law. All of these ideas um, were flowering in in the 1800s. And like you said, we think of, you know, this Victorian woman as being totally buttoned up and sexless and hating it. There's been, I don't know, did you, have you heard of the Mosher, the Mosher survey? It's a tiny, tiny survey that was done by a woman doctor named Clelia Dual Mosher. And the bad thing about it, it was, it's like the sample size is like 50. It's all white women and they're all college educated, but they were born at the time that I'm writing about in my book. And they were asked around 50 questions that included, do you have an orgasm? And I've read the answers. It's really hard to parse them because they're not, it's not like a checking a box kind of thing. They're just talking about their experiences. So some of them hated sex and some of them said, my husband likes it more than I do, but it makes me happy because I feel close to him. And some of them said, I have orgasms. I don't think they use the word orgasm though. I'm trying to remember, but there was a real variety of women's sexual experience. And the, this survey has been written about of course, it was republished in the 70s. <laughs> of course. Great recovery. But it's it's one of the only studies that we have because this is, I'm so fascinated by this. Like, I want to know what was sex like for women in the 50s? I'm really interested in that because I feel like every 1950s, so I feel like everything we hear about it, you know, it's just like women getting pregnant accidentally in the back seats of cars and stuff. But I really want to know, like, where was women's pleasure around then? And also, where was it in the 1870s? There were one thing that I should mention is marital rape was very, very common and legal at the time that I'm writing about. And I think that a lot of the women at that time couldn't even figure out what they felt about sex because it was an imposition and they had no choice. So to even get to the point where you're like, tonight was better than last night, or this is what I want you to do to me in (laughs) 19th century language, you can't have a husband who's raping you every night and impregnating you however many times in your childbearing years, causing you enormous risk with each successive pregnancy and often economic devastation because, because the burden of, of child care was always falling on the women. And so a lot of these radicals um, that I write about in my book were just trying any way at all they could think of to make marriages and marital sex better from, from, you know, these techniques like male continence, which was similar to tantric sex, which is a way of, of channeling the orgasm out so that the man did not ejaculate inside the women, to encouraging women not to be used, to idocratic saying, move your hips around like a belly dancer. She wasn't saying because then you'll have a clitoral orgasm and it'll be awesome. She was saying that you 
should feel good during sex. But see, this is the tricky thing. She was never, she was never really openly advocating for women's pleasure. She would occasionally say things like women shouldn't be ashamed to have as high libidos as men. But she was usually locating this idea of moving your hips as something beneficial to the marriage. Yeah. So in other words, in order to sell the women on clitoral orgasms, she had to sell it as a marriage preserver. In other words, as something that would make the man enjoy it more. He'll like it better if you don't just lie there. Mm. And that is a really genius thing because she, she knew she couldn't sell it to her population of very mainstream readers by saying, you know, women can come during sex. And if you move your hips around, you know, there's this thing you have. <laughs> Much less talk about getting on top. She did advocate the nude embrace, which is so radical. The idea of lying in bed with your partner naked. Nobody, that was like really scandalous. Wow. Right. And she, and she talked about foreplay. She did use the term foreplay, but she said she's, she recommended a minimum 30 minutes of foreplay before, before in entry. Oh, damn. I wish some people would do that now. Me too. I'm like, let's, let's bring that back. What? That's yeah. what I'm saying in, in, in like 1902. I mean, she, she really did. tell the man don't attempt entrance before a minimum. And she didn't call it foreplay. I'm sorry. She called it lovemaking. Okay. This is so radical because we're only now embracing the idea. If you go on Instagram, you'll see posts like trying to reframe sex for people. And Whitney is big on this. I know in her relationship coaching, people reframing it and saying outer course is sex. Mm. We're still in this mindset that Ida Craddock was trying to get us out of, right? She was already saying all this stuff is sexy or sex, not just the intercourse part. Right, no, she wasn't saying it was sex, but she was saying all of this increases relationship harmony or what she would call magne magnetization. <laughs> I, they, they believe that electric currents were exchanged between a couple. Now we can laugh at it now, right? But really it's all the same stuff. They're talking about connection, yeah, spiritual, connection. spiritual connection. And How do you connect with your partner? And also the idea that you should love and respect each other. You know, one thing she said that I loved was she was very concerned about the hymen on the wedding night. And she said that because so many women had extremely, extremely painful intercourse their very first time having sex. Um, and so she said that in some cases, it might be good for the woman to have her hymen snipped before the wedding night because she just didn't want women to have this agonizing experience. And she said, now, in some cases, the man may notice that your hymen has been snipped and he may not think that it was done by your doctor. Well, if that's the case, he's probably not the kind of man you should marry anyway. <laughs> Ida. Mm. She's feisty, little one. I love it. That, she, I mean, I, I'm like fascinated by her. She's feisty. She's intelligent. She like works really what she wants. And then also like she, some, of, some of this ghost fucking is a little wild for me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like... <laughs> 
I'm so fascinated by do you have person. do you have friends that do you have friends that 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 I mean I don't think this is erotic dreaming because she had a very good ability to distinguish she would not call them dreams mm-hmm. but have you ever had friends that said that they've you know seen someone that they've lost Oh yeah 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 for sure and but I they didn't, and I, they didn't fuck them I can wrap my head around that and be like I can get woo woo with the best of them um, but I'm also very skeptical as well. Um, so, so what do you think, what do you think was happening when he was visiting her? I mean, do you think she was just fantasizing and rubbing her, rubbing herself against her pillow? I mean, I definitely think she was masturbating, <laughs> but they, she, but she, many, many nights she was on her back. I really think that she was literally inventing a place and a reality where it was okay for a woman who wasn't married to have sex and sexual pleasure. And it literally had to be another world. And she like lived there. Like it became her. Yeah. I, I love that. And also Wednesday, what, what you're getting at is she frequently at a certain point after she married, Soph, she began referring to herself as Mrs. Ida C. Craddock and skeptical people believed that this was a way of legitimizing her sex teaching because this is the conundrum, right? If you're an unmarried woman, how could you know everything about sex Uh if you haven't had premarital sex? And if you've had premarital sex, why should I respect you and be interested in anything you have to say? Because you're so, so her, her workaround, and of course it wasn't a workaround in her mind because she believed that she was married to him was to call herself Mrs. And you can see in her publications over time, you know, this, this Mrs. term. And, uh, in some of her court cases, she, she would say, I was married to a man that died. That was (laughs) easy. Even there, there, she just just didn't say who was already dead when I married him. Right. I mean, you know, there is a whole (laughs) literature on people having sex with ghosts. There is a whole sex research and like, um, like folkloric, contemporary folkloric mm-hmm. lit about ghost sex. And I, but I did not know that it had so much to do with the sex radical from the late, from, from the late 1800s. It's amazing. So fascinating. And I mean, we have to end, which I hate, but I, I think. Amy, I think what you've done so brilliantly is like set us up to need to know and people, you're going to have to buy the book. You're going to have to buy the book called The Man Who Hated Women. Um, and it has to make the series. Yeah. You're going to be working on it. I'm working on it. I want it to be like a little bit like, um, and anthological where you, you know each episode it wouldn't be each episode is a different woman but you could have six episodes about victoria woodhall and 12 episodes yes. about idocratic and then it would go through time from the 1870s all the way you don't even have to stop when comstock dies in 1915 we can we can keep going into yeah. the 60s and, 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 and stop it in the 60s. <laughs> believe me. Believe me. I just want to say, everybody, now that you've heard something about Anthony Comstock and this great description of this 
amazing sex radical idocratic, you are going to want to know what happened when there was this confrontation between Anthony Comstock and idocratic and what went down. And it's shocking. Yeah, to do that, you're going to have to read The Man Who Hated Women, Sex, Censorship, and Civil Liberties in the Gilded Age by the amazing Amy Stone. Thank you guys so much. I, Amy, where can people find but, you? Oh, amystone.com, Twitter, Amy Stone. My Instagram's still private. Okay, then. We're telling people to buy the book on bookshop.org, which is independent, but really wherever your whatever your local indie indie is is what I support because I am a unionist. And let's not even get into that. Okay. <laughs> we support you. We support your book. We support sex radicals who have sex with ghosts. We yeah. are- <laughs> Whitney, All of it. Whitney, I was not expecting this today. Me either. Me either. But I'm, I could not be, I'm, I can't wait right now because the whole like wedding party is down there that I'm like, you guys, I just did <laughs> the best podcast ever. Let me tell you everything. Amy, we love you. I love your work, Amy. I've admired you for so long from when I was in my twenties and wished I were you and wanted a career like yours. Thank you for being thank on. Thank you so much, Wednesday. And I thank you guys both for the work that you're doing, which is so important because I can't believe that we're still judging our own pleasure 150 fucking years after this guy passed his law. Perfect parting words. Thank you, Amy. Bye. <laughs> hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah. Leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.